Welcome to the Succession Stories podcast. I'm Lori Barkman. I work with business owners to maximize value, create options for the future, and be happy in your next. I'm excited to share the What's Next series as part of Succession Stories. These conversations spotlight the theme of transitions. Changes can come at you unexpectedly or be planned. Are you ready? After all, in business and life, Succession is about transitions and how you embrace what's next matters. U.S. Army veteran Stephen Bollinger is a serial entrepreneur in the medical device industry. Stephen's superpower is discovering market opportunities to help people live better lives. During his career, he sold three medical device companies. Stephen's story unfolds with his transitions from the military to sales rainmaker to medical product innovator. He found a market niche by increasing the availability of medically proven approaches from doctor care to over-the-counter. His mission is to address critical and common women's health issues that can also lead to depression. Enjoy this What's Next Succession Stories episode about finding a passion that makes an impact with Fetchpreneur Stephen Bollinger. 100% of owners will leave their business one day, but few are prepared. Through this show and in my advisory practice, I've spoken with hundreds of people about the uncertainty they feel about big questions like, who will take over for me one day? And what should I be doing now to get ready? To guide you through these challenges, I've written a book called The Business Transition Handbook. It provides real life stories, exercises and tools to help you get ready and let go on your own terms without regrets. Get the book and sign up to receive exclusive content by visiting businesstransitionhandbook.com. That's businesstransitionhandbook.com. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Steve Bollinger, welcome to Succession Stories. I'm excited to speak with you. You're a serial entrepreneur. You've got an incredible background, your journey from the military to following your passion in entrepreneurial ventures is an exciting one. Welcome. Thank you. And we met because of the Tepper School of Business and you're a fellow adjunct professor. So we'll also want to talk about that. Why don't we start with you? Tell me your story. Oh, well, it's a, it's a long and twisted story, but it began with the United States Military Academy. I was looking for an engineering uh, opportunity and my father introduced me, he was from the Navy, he introduced me to the United States Military Academy and the United States Naval Academy, and he asked me, do you want to live your life on sea or do you want to live it on land? I said, I, I prefer land, Dad. He goes, well, I think you should think about West Point. So I, I began my path there. I had a, a great experience at the Academy, and from there, we graduate as second lieutenants and join the military. I became an artillery officer. I was blessed uh, to be an airborne ranger. I was able to do some great things in the military. I spent my five years in, which is a requirement to be a West Point graduate. But after my last Gulf War, my wife, who was a news anchor at the time, said, you know, 
either you're going to marry me or Uncle Sam. And 32 years later, I made the right decision. I'm still married to my lovely bride. So at that point, I needed to figure out what I want to do next. And my father, I went back to once again. I said, Dad, I haven't practiced engineering. I don't really know what a civilian does. He goes, well, sales, my son, get into sales, you know, where the rubber meets the road. I'm like, okay, Dad. So there was a recruiting group that specialized in academy graduates that were getting out of the military. And at that point, I decided that I wanted to get into medicine. I've always had a passion for medicine, but I wasn't in the top of the class at West Point. And the only the top 1% can actually go into medicine from there. So I was always interested. So at that point, I joined a company called Decnatel, which was a, was a really interesting company, a mature company dealing with the cardiovascular space. And I began there and advanced to became the youngest sales trainer. And then my national sales manager left to join a new startup. And I just didn't know what to do next. I was kind of, my, my territory was very mature. I was in the top five sales reps and I just didn't know what I wanted to do next. At that point, he asked me to join him, which was a company, a small company that was into the laparoscopy field. And they specialized in general surgery and OBGYN. And it was a really interesting company called American Hydrosurgical. Well, and I joined that company. I was the youngest sales, one of the youngest sales reps at the time. We had about 10 sales reps. We were penetrating a new market. And I was blessed that I really understood my region. I lived in California at the time. I was a top sales rep for a couple of years. And then I started making actually too much money, uh, which is kind of weird, right? The national sales manager said I was uh, sandbagging my numbers because I was doing much better than projected. And at that point, I made a realization that I noticed a lot of sales reps in the medical industry as they aged, they just became a little bit rough, right? A little bitter, a little, I just didn't want to be that person. So I was asked to move in-house and I started working on uh, project development, marketing, new products, and a regulatory path, wouldn't you know? So it was a small company. I was able to learn a lot about what happens inside of a company. And at that point, I started on developing new products for them and new technologies. And my engineering background started to become useful. And what I decided then was, uh, or the president at the time decided that he wanted to sell the company. So I worked on the diligence team to help the acquisition happen. And that was my first taste of hey, you can really make a lot of money and be successful in, in this industry. He sold the company. I was asked to take the next steps with him, and they wanted me to join Bar Dayball in New England. I said, absolutely not. I have no interest in moving from Florida to the Boston, Massachusetts area. So I was found by a recruiting group that that had a company that was interested in an eclectic person like myself. I really was a jack of all trades, but master of none, if you, if you look at that foundation. And the company's name was Mentor. It was out of Santa Barbara, California. So wouldn't you know, I moved from San Diego, I moved to Florida, and now I uproot my family and we moved to Santa Barbara, California. And 
it was a wonderful opportunity. They had a technology that was non-working. They had three engineers that were trying to solve a problem in, in body contouring, fat removal. Mentor Corporation was the market leader in breast implants for women's health, primarily focused on reconstructive uh, surgery for women that have had cancer. It was a wonderful company. They also had a urologic division and they had an ophthalmic division. The ophthalmic division was out of Massachusetts. The urologic division was out of Illinois. So when we looked at those two opportunities, they asked me to come on board and run a project that would work with all three divisions of this company. <laughs> at this point, I'm just trying to figure out where the bathrooms are. And we took a non-functioning device uh, in 18 months we took it to a functional, completely new system. We launched the product internationally and worldwide, and today it's still the number one product used for lipoplasty. And that was done in around 1997, 98 timeframe. So at this point, I was loved my job. I was doing international travel, but I was traveling about 90% of the time. And I had a new young son, and I'm like, this is crazy. I didn't get out of the military to be living away from my family again. So the other thing that was interesting was Mentor no longer was giving stock options to directors and below. So I was really not building wealth like I wanted to. And I went to a, a meeting in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and this meeting was very interesting. I get to the airport, and... I'm like, I'm an American. I don't speak Portuguese. I'm walking through the airport, all buttoned up in a suit, ready to go. And I see this wild man in a Hawaiian shirt, smoking a cigarette, has, has a scrunchy beard, you know, very Greek oriented. He's cussing at the customs in English. He's going crazy. And I'm like, oh my God, this is a terrible representative of the United States. I just got to get out of the airport and go to my meeting. So I go to my meeting. It's a medical meeting. And the following morning, I get there, and wouldn't you know that crazy Greek guy that I just met on the airport was in the booth next to me. He was the CEO of his company, a founder of his company called Byron Medical. Very interesting guy. We were like yin and yang, ice and fire. We came from totally different worlds. We thought of things differently. And for about five days at the meeting, he kept wanting to meet with me and have lunch and dinners and strategies. And I had no one else to talk to. So I went to him and uh, we had an interesting time. At that point, he came and said, hey, I'd like you to come join my company. I'm like, absolutely not. I said, there's no way you and I can live together at all. So he kept pursuing it. He, he sent me tickets out of Santa Barbara to go to Tucson, Arizona. So he brought my son, my wife, my son, who is now a baby at the time. We flew out to Arizona. He picks me up in this car. He's smoking a cigarette out the window, talking to us in the back. And in Arizona, if you're not familiar with Tucson, they have no streetlights, right? And he just moved into a new house. It's like 10 o'clock at night and he can't get home, right? And I'm like, my wife is like, oh, just just how long is this weekend supposed to last, right? So I met with him the next morning. I met with his wife. I met with his family. I met with the business. And I really thought I could make a difference. So my wife and I went back. We said, hey, you want to do this? I'm like, absolutely. And we joined the company. When I got there, 
I had experience with regulatory, I had experience with product development, marketing, and sales. And these guys were purely salespeople that were outsourcing products. Well, wouldn't you know, when, the day I get there, they're having a product recall. I'm, I have to do a product recall because products are breaking in the field. So I went through the regulatory system. They had no 510Ks. They were breaking every law known to man. Uh, they were a distributor making medical devices. So I said, listen, we need to stop. So I wrote actually 23 510Ks uh, when it was easy to write a 510K. I wrote them to the FDA. I submitted them. And then I talked to the FDA. Uh, the actually division head was Celia Witten at the time. And I said, listen, Dr. Witten, I said, we, you know, we have a chance here to make a, an impact. I said, the lipoplasty field is considered a class three medical device. And that means it requires extensive studying. Nobody wants to study the space. Every doctor is using this technology today and every company is selling it off label. If I do a clean submission to you, would you give me a class two authorization to market and downclassify this from three to two? And she said, yes. So I sent that information. We downclassified it as a class three to class two. We're now allowed to say fat removal or lipoplasty. And then, you know, again, this is about two years into it. I had to fire his wife, his children. You know, we had to find all new vendors and manufacturers. So I was busy 24 seven, enjoying life. And then I called my old boss at Mentor Corporation. I said, hey, you know, we cleaned up this company. My CEO, my founder is wanting to retire. He's about 67 at the time. What do you think about this company? He came in and within six months, he acquired our company for about 14 times sales. So it was a wonderful opportunity. Everyone did very well. But the next thing that was very interesting was the fact that they wanted me to move from Tucson, Arizona back to Santa Barbara. And I was just like, no, I don't think I can do that again. So I didn't join Mentor. I didn't regain with them. I stepped back and tried to figure out what I wanted to do next. And one of my manufacturers that I recently hired to build product <laughs> is out of Boston, Massachusetts. And he said, Steve, I have this idea in minimally invasive surgery for interventional radiology and cardiology to close the femoral artery once the physician accesses it. And I'm like, Okay, yeah, tell me about it. I told him about it. I met a doctor that was, you know, one of the well-known Harvard grad interventional radiologist and interventional cardiologist. I met him and I said, okay, yeah, I can do this. So we started a company called AngioLink. AngioLink, we started in 2000. We did 26 trips to South America doing medical research. Uh, in four years, we raised around 26 million and we sold it for. $180 million. Uh, so it was a really great opportunity, um, really my first taste of success. And of course, now uh, we sold this company to Medtronic Corporation, and they lived North Boston, I lived in South Boston. And I'm like, Oh, this is really uh, no way am I going to do that commute, right? <laughs> Just absolutely no way. So I stayed on board for a year, they had this, you know, package for me to help the transition. Um, at that point, you know, I got a real estate license. I built a suit of armor out of 304 stainless steel. I learned how to weld. And um, my wife and I started fencing. And my wife came up to me and said, you know, you are 
you need to find another way of occupying your time. You know, you're going crazy. So I said, okay. So uh, you're not kidding. You literally made a, an, a suit of armor. Yes, yes, yes. Multiple. And, uh, multiple and started fencing. Yeah. It was very, in my my basement, I had uh, I have anvils. I have all these forming materials. I got hammers. Yeah. Uh, it was very exciting. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. After I did that, you know, my wife really, you know, guided me to go figure out what I want to do next. And one thing that was very interesting was this venture capitalist out of Boston came up to me and said, hey, you know, you know, you have a very interesting background. Would you like to look at a biologic company? I'm like, oh. I don't know anything about biologic. Now, you got to understand, you know, from the military, we're taught that there's no job you can't learn in two weeks, right? That was kind of the mantra, right? So I'm like, I said, listen, I don't know anything about biologics. You know, I don't know anything about chemistry, um, you know. So he said, listen, we need someone that has a device oriented to take this product forward because all the scientists in the other region just can't really put the package all together. I said, okay, well, I'll give it a try. So I joined the company, uh, Pervasive Therapeutics, a very uh, interesting company, Harvard-based technology dealing with allogeneic endothelial cells. Uh, it was a fantastic, we raised, you know, um, around $20, $20 million. We did our first clinical study. It was very successful. And then in 2008, the market started blowing up for, medical devices. The industry was changing in 2008. Uh, so we worked out an opportunity and sold the company to Shire. Uh, at that point, it wasn't a great success. It was really bio dollars, as we said, but it was a way to continue the success of the company with a partner that could actually grow it. So there was dollars on the back end. Let me ask you a question about the two experiences you had in selling. You sold to Strategics. Were they partners already of your companies or did you approach them why did they acquire you <laughs> i don't know <laughs> honestly um they you know we were we were very good at uh telling a story uh penetrating a marketplace especially in the uh, angelink with respect to interventional radiology and cardiology and we started in our clinical studies in our work we started meeting uh, uh you know, the key competitors in the space. And in that process, you know, we as executives are out in the clinical study arena uh, in the U.S. study, and we're meeting senior management as we go. And we just started telling our story to them. And it took about, geez, it took about two, three years from the initial conversations to an acquisition. So it took a long time, but we built relationships we kept them constantly informed of what we were doing. Uh, we never let them not think about us, right? And I think that was the secret to, to that acquisition. And did you work with an intermediary or who ended up being the person that was quarterbacking the M&A process from, from so your team? Once we got the partner, it's very difficult to be founders and executives of a company and be in the negotiators, right? So we, we hired an investment banking group 
out of Boston to support us to, to do that additional legwork to try to create an auction environment. It was actually very rocky. We had a, so this is actually the time frame of 9-11, okay? And we had an offer from uh, Medtronic at the time that was really sweet. I mean, like beyond perfect. We signed uh, letters of intent. We were going to Washington, D.C. that morning. Uh, we were going to Washington, D.C. Uh, for a uh, uh, interventional cardiology meeting, right, called TCT. So we were flying to this meeting to close the deal, sign the paperwork, everything would be done. We are just on cloud nine. The whole company's bouncing off the walls. Um, now, my partner and I are totally opposite, again, uh, of, of Angelink. Um, you know, I like to be 30 minutes early. He likes to be two minutes late, right? And I hate traveling with them. I mean, we were just hated traveling with each other because I'd be on the plane going, oh my God, he's not going to make it. And, you know, before the doors would close, he would step in and be there. I mean, he was the luckiest person when it came to that kind of stuff. He was always late. He was always this way. Wonderful gentleman, really smart guy. Um, but in that process, we said, all right, I said, we're going to fly together again. I'm like, all right, if we're going to fly together, we're flying first flight out. We're, I'm picking you up. We're going to leave from the office together. Here's what we're going to do. So eight o'clock in the morning, our flight was supposed to leave around 10. I usually leave at six, but we left a little later. And once you know, 9-11 hits, um, we weren't on the planes, but we were supposed to fly that day. Uh, when that all happened, that deal fell apart, right? Everyone went radio silence for 12 months. The people we negotiated with with that uh, Medtronic uh, left, right, or were let go. The change of the business development people were all gone, and we had to start all over again another six to 12 months to regain the confidence, get the deal done. And we it was not as sweet as the deal we had initially. So it was definitely a rocky road. Wow, sorry to hear that. That's a that's a crazy story. I have heard about deals falling apart, though. That one probably, you know, is obviously something we cannot control. A lot of times, deals fall apart because of diligence or other reasons, right? Or price. But you had it all negotiated, and then there was just a a, a global. Oh, we were doing the happy dance. We were so excited. We were just, you know, on yeah. So, you know, at this point, you know, I'm totally fried. I've been doing 24-7 medical devices, uh, biologics, you know, working around the clock, had our second child, and we're just like, this is crazy. You know, I'm really burning, you know, the candle at both ends. So I took a breath. Uh, uh, one of my investors was uh, Bob Higgins out of Highland Capital Partners, a brilliant, brilliant gentleman. And I said, listen, I need a break. He said, come be an executive in residence at Highland Capital Partners. I'm like, fantastic. So what an executive residence does is uh, we are basically a filter for new technologies and ideas, right? So we're seeing 10, 15 meal deals a day, right? And it's just, it's huge. It's a very, very uh, fast paced uh, program. And it was just crazy, but what it did allow me to do was see other ideas in the medical device field and see, you know, is this something I'd like to do next? And I had this idea and I really thought about the space and I stepped back and said, listen, the success I've had with selling companies in the medical device industry is no longer the same model. We can't achieve the same success doing the same old model. So I... I wanted to do something different 
And what I wanted to do was I studied actually medicine and I took a whole portfolio overview and said, all right, how has medicine evolved, right? So it started with, you know, infectious diseases. We solved that problem. We started living a little longer. Then the next thing we started having is cardiovascular disease states. We're living longer, but now we have ways of solving that. So medicine did a great way of solving cardiovascular. Now everyone's living longer, as well as with diabetes. We're living longer, but are we living better, right? And I looked at the aging disease state and I said, wow, this is a really great opportunity, I think, to re-energize my energies uh, and my focus. Well, one of the things that was a challenge was um, being a Gulf War um, veteran, my wife and I wanted to have children when we got out and she had three miscarriages in a row. You know, could have been us, could have been an amazing thing. Everyone was blaming on, you know, the military. And I'm like, you know, I don't know. So she kept on seeing the same doctor. She got pregnant again. I'm like, you're done. We're not going back to your OBGYN. Now, at this point, I'm in San Diego. I was uh, working with um, very high-end OBGYNs, uh, fertility specialists with our product. And uh, uh, I knew this guy very well. And I said, you're going to go see my doctor, Dr. Haggerty. We went to go see him. And he said, Steve, you can't come in. I'm just going to talk to your wife. So I was sitting in a waiting room and uh, all these couples are just stressed out over the gap between natural intercourse and the more aggressive treatments like IUI and IVF. And I said, wow, there must be a way to bridge this gap. That was back in early 90s, right? It took me 10 years to say, is this idea really worth taking the next step with? So what I did was I looked at this and I said, I really want to do something different. I want to take medically proven approaches that were once only available under a physician's care through innovation, take it directly to the end user. And that was taking a prescriptive device over the counter through innovation. And fertility became a real passion of mine. So what we did was we take, we created a company called Renovo Women's Health. Um, the product was called the Stork. And we basically bridged that gap with a condom-like collection and a tampon-like delivery system to aid couples on their path to conception. We loved it. We did a U.S. launch. We did a worldwide launch. We sold in Canada, China. We sold in the U.K. Uh, we sold in Europe uh, and Australia. And it was always you know, a struggle to get new customers. But the product was super successful, right? I mean, people that weren't getting pregnant um, through even IUI, IVF, or natural intercourse used our product and were having great success. The challenge was finding new customers is your, the cost of marketing to find a new customer. So now it's about um, 2019, and one of my distributors out of China says, Steve, I want to buy your company. And at this point, the company was doing okay, but we weren't hitting the trajectory that we always wanted to because we just didn't have enough marketing dollars to support an over-the-counter product which were was you bootstrapped was were you that? bootstrapped at this point did you yeah. fund like fund out of your own pocket or did you i have did a, and i had another investor as well that that followed on a high wealth family that that supported us so i'm putting my money in he's putting his money in um so 
in 2019, we have finally agreed to sell the company to that group. So now it's like, okay, what are we going to do next, right? And one of the things was so exciting to me were all these older ladies that were getting pregnant, older couples that were having a problem conceiving, conceived with the stork, they'd call me up and say, Steve, I'm really upset at you. I'm like, oh my God, what did I do wrong? He goes, well, you got me pregnant. Thank you. You helped us on our path of our child. But that child was like a football coming out of my vaginal tract. And you know what? Guess what? Now, every time I cough, sneeze, or dance, I tinkle in my pants. Can you solve that problem for us? I'm like, okay, well, let me look <laughs> at it, right? You're becoming an expert on women's uh, oh, medical. Yeah. So women's health became an extreme passion. And the reason why I love women's health, and I say this, you know, very jovially, is that men go through two phases of life, puberty and midlife crisis, right? Women go through about seven unique physiological changes of life. So there's so many opportunities to help women that really aren't getting that help. And with technologies advancing so much in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, a lot of things that were functional basically were getting to advanced procedures and weren't being utilized because you know physicians evolved forward. But the challenge is many of those ideas are very positive and can help women uh, if we can make them consumer friendly, right? And women are stereotypically a much smarter consumer of healthcare. Example, men, stereotypically, we get coughs and colds and boo-boos and, you know, cuts and bruises. And we don't really see a doctor until 35 and we have a prostate exam to look at a diagnostic opportunity for, for prostate cancer. Whereas women at age 16, 13 to 16, they're learning their body. By the time they're 20, 21, they really say, doctor, no, that doesn't work. That antibiotic's no good. Here's what I want. They really haven't, they really understand their bodies and their evolution. So they're just a lot stronger consumer of healthcare. So when I looked at those two models, I said, wow, women really, this is a really great opportunity to help women on their path. And me being married for 32 years, my wife has gone through almost every one of the phases, right? So, so I've been blessed uh, to have a Petri dish in my own household, right? So brought this idea to my wife and said, okay, what do you think about this? Um, what I loved about our technology, Ovala now, Ovala Inc., uh, the product's name is Revive, is that when I first thought about it, I said, well, what is the disease state? Like, what is it all about? And it's a it's a physiological issue. The connective tissue that supports the urethra no longer have the elasticity. So every time you resident, have resident movement, uh, it causes leakage, right? You know, so that's the physiological. It could be smoking, could be exercise, it could be childbirth. There's multiple factors to drive the physiological issue. But what really intrigued me was the psychological impact. So it was both a physiological and psychological. The women that have stress incontinence leak. And what that happens is they become very subconscious. Uh, they stop going out. They stop interacting. Uh, they just become more introverted. And so they change their lifestyle. They slowly gain weight. They just get really unhappy. Their, their, their relationship with their significant other is disturbed because of this whole event. So I said, wow, this is a physiological and a psychological moment. I love it, right? 
So I said, how big is this marketplace? And I said, okay, well, let's figure that out. So when you looked at the market size, you got really excited because, not in a negative way, I guess, one out of three women uh, worldwide have some form of stress incontinence, right? Have some form of incontinence. So there's urge incontinence or stress incontinence, but they have this disease. They diagnosed every year, 18 million in the United States. I said, wow, that's just a huge number. Then I found out that 80% of these women uh, are diagnosed with, guess what, depression, right? I said, wow, this is really something that may, if we can solve this problem, we could have impact. So once I figured out that there was a good market, an interesting opportunity, a strong need, the next thing I looked at is, well, what is the trends in the marketplace? And this is where I kind of just said, all right, what are women using today? Well, almost all today, the majority of women use pads, right? And the challenge with pads are they're, they're brilliant for, for menstrual cycle, but for incontinence, most women are dehydrated because they don't want to have urine in their system. So the urine is usually acidic and pungent. So it causes both discomfort and odor. So what a terrible solution. In fact, you know, experiencing this with, with uh, acquaintances and friends and family, what we find out is many women are pad smugglers. They go to an event, they go to a pad, they, they, they laugh, they have fun, they leak, they go to the bathroom. They don't want to flush the pad because it could occlude the toilet. So they don't want to put it in the trash to seem like they have a problem. So they carry a Ziploc and carry it out. I'm like, oh my God, this is terrible. So I said, all right, pads are not a good solution. And then when I looked at standard of care by physicians, there are things called pessaries. And pessaries look like everything from a Dunkin' Donut to a Rubik's Cube, you know? So I'm like, oh my God, these are crazy. Uh, then I looked at physical therapy, but the problem with a pessary is compliance, right? Women basically have to give up, you know, intercourse if they have a pessary. Well, men are now hopped up on Viagra. You know, now it's just like, you know, there's this, there's this, this disconnect. So pessaries really were not a good option for most women. So bottom line is um, surgical opportunities were, were much more difficult. So I figured out to say, this is the one thing I wanted to do. We developed the company, we launched in the United States, we now sell online, we sell on Amazon and hopefully going into retail. So that's kind of where I'm at today and just trying to do the best I can. Well, that's amazing. I think this is a really great illustration of someone, you know, you're someone who always is sort of going to what's next, right? You've started out in the military, you developed a passion and a career in sales and found a entrepreneurial path in medical devices. You had some exits, you helped others with an exit, and you've continued to learn from, from all of these experiences to, to help people with real problems, you know, conceiving a child, you're right. And it can cause a lot of emotional stress for families, financial stress for families. Um, and then incontinence for, for women. I mean, it's interesting that you learned about not only the prevalence of it, but also these emotional and social impacts that, it, that this problem can have for people. And ultimately, as a medical device entrepreneur, that's what you're trying to do is you're creating a social good, but at the same time, you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to create value in the business. So I find your story very interesting and compelling. It's very different from other entrepreneurs I've had on the show because you're creating a product, right? We can all sort of relate that there's a widget here, but it, it needs FDA approval. 
there's risk associated with these products. You know, you can see people being fearful of lawsuits or what have you, but you've persevered and you've created products that have been, that have been successful. I guess just to kind of wind down and have you think about your entrepreneurial experience and context of what do you think would be three things you would say to an entrepreneur who's listening and maybe they're not in the medical space, right? So they can't relate to you from that perspective, but they're creating a product or they're creating these relationships with Medtronic's a huge industry player. You sold to strategics. That's not an easy thing to do. Excuse me, the Medtronic was a deal that didn't go through, but nonetheless, you got their attention. So if someone's creating a company, if they've got a successful business that they want to get the attention after they've built the product market fit and gotten to the point where they think they can position it to sell, what would be some of your M&A lessons learned that we could kind of put a bow on here? Oh, so relationships are everything. And I think the one thing I learned, um, I'm still learning is so much of this deals with the one-on-one -on -one connection uh, listening to what the customers are looking for. Uh, and I find that that really is critical and not being hubris, uh, not drinking your Kool-Aid that you actually believe everything that that is real, but selling a real story, uh, selling them an opportunity, uh, not over-promising and under-delivering, but you know, over-delivering and under-promising, I think is critical. And I always tell people the three things I think about for an entrepreneur is that one is, you know, do what you love. You have to love what you do because it's going to be so stressful. There's going to be ups and downs and it's, it's a mess. But if you love what you're doing and you have a internal mission of why you're doing it and you always have that as a mantra, it keeps you grounded to do the next critical thing is never give up right? And many, many people get into a lot of good companies fail because the, the team just hit so many barriers. They just throw up their hands and they can't find another way and they just walk away. And I find that that, that is so critical is just to never quit and always look at things as every, every uh, challenge is an opportunity. Right. So I always laugh when people say, oh, we're, we have a huge problem here. I said, oh, it looks like we have an opportunity. Right. And I think that mantra uh, really helps get through the hard times, you know, because easy times are easy. They're not there. Every company that's sold they're, they're in my opinion, are, are struggles that you never see. Uh, the, the, the chaos behind the, 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 the curtain, the challenge is. Everybody tells the, the success story and they think, oh, you got lucky, right? Oh, you got lucky. Now, you know, you don't, you didn't see all the tears that were, that were, they cried during the development of a product. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think that's a great mantra. Every challenge is an opportunity and it's certainly something that it's been consistent across your experience. Steve, if people want to get in touch with you to learn more, how can they find you? So you can reach me um, at sbollinger at userevive, U-S-E-R-E-V-I-V.com. Uh, -E -E uh, you, can, you can reach out to our website, and there are numbers that you can get a hold of me at and would love the opportunity if people would like to talk to me. Uh, doors wide open.
Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show today, sharing your experience, sharing some of the trials and tribulations along the way, and some things that you've learned. So really appreciate you. No, no problem. One thing that I, I like to leave with is, is in the military, um, it's a rangers, we, we, we had one thing going, it said, if things are going too well, it's an ambush, right? So, you know, just be ready that and when everything is going perfect, you need to be thinking of why it's not going perfect to solve those future problems. <laughs> That's a good one to live by. Thank you so much, Steve. And to our listeners, thank you for listening today. Catch Succession Stories on your favorite podcast player and on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. If you want to maximize the value of your business and plan for future transition, reach out to me for a complimentary assessment at meetlauriebarkman.com. Join me next time for more insights from transition to transaction. Until then, here's to your success. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com. Dot com.